This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe was a radio series featuring Raymond Chandler's private eye, Philip Marlowe, and in 1948, the series moved to CBS, where it was called The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, with Gerald Moore playing Marlowe. By 1949, it had the largest audience in radio. Despite the program's popularity, it had no sponsor for most of its time on the air, the lone exceptions were when Ford Motor Company and subsequently Wrigley's Gum sponsored it during part of 1950. It was reported that, quote, initially Chandler had considered asking for script approval for the Marlowe radio series, but ultimately he decided to have no connection with the scripting of the programs. <laughs> and listen to this. He contented himself with the weekly royalties he received for the use of his character while professing himself moderately pleased with Gerald Moore's portrayal of Marlowe. Wow, moderately pleased. How that must have stung the actor who played the leading role. Well, takes all kinds, doesn't it? And now the episode, The Mexican Boat Ride. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road and those who travel it wind up in the gut of the prison of the grave. This time I took a beating and gave one. The man who lived in the dark was afraid. Someone I never got to meet was murdered and a knife-wielding crab was destroyed. All because a girl who hated the water took a boat ride in old Mexico. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of mystery, comes his most famous character and crime's most deadly enemy as we present The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's story, Mexican Boat Ride. Clear and clean. You know the kind that knocks ten years off your age and makes you taste the sunshine in your orange juice? It was a day to be spent on an open road to someplace new and exciting. But a phone call I'd received had reduced my open road to Camelita Avenue and nothing more exciting than Beverly Hills. The house I stopped at was one of those you entered through a tunnel of dank, overhanging foliage on a flagstone path grown green with damp moss. A low, thick-walled affair with tiny, barred windows hidden from the sidewalk. I pressed the bell, and a moment later, a sallow housekeeper opened the door with what seemed to be our last ounce of strength. She squinted at my card and beckoned me inside. I followed her down a dusky corridor to a heavy, closed door, where she signaled me to wait. The air in the house smelled thick and stale, 
When she came out again, she held the door open for me and motioned me into a room full of darkness. It became nearly complete when the door clicked shut behind me. All I could see was the vague form of a man in smoke glasses propped up on a bed across the room. There's a chair beside you, Marlowe, if you care to sit. Oh, thanks. I'm Carl Estabrook, importer. You may have heard of me. No, I don't think so. Well, no matter. <laughs> Marlowe, I have a peculiar problem. I want to know why my wife, Ona, was on a boat day before yesterday off the coast of Mexico. Think you could find out? Well, if that's all you got to go on, I doubt it. No, there's a little more. Huh? Ona and I planned to take vacation together. But when I was confined with this illness, we decided she should go on alone. Oh, then your illness is the reason for the midsummer blackout, huh? Yes. If I expose my eyes to light at any time in the next few weeks, the doctors promise me plenty of pain and virtual blindness. Oh. It's temporary, but tedious to mend. That's why I need a capable man with sharp eyes. To look into what, specifically? The paradox of my wife aboard a boat. Mm -hmm. She has a phobia about them. The mere thought of being on a boat makes her panicky. She drove to Ensenada, Mexico, earlier this week, but believe me, her plans did not include boat rides. Well, tell me, how'd you find out she was on one? Is she right? No, she hasn't written me at all, but that's not unusual for her. A friend of mine got back yesterday from a fishing trip down there. The day before, his boat passed another with a girl aboard. He got a good look at her. He was so sure that it was Ona that he hailed her. The girl turned and ran inside. <laughs> it it bothered him to the extent that when he got home here, he called me to find out if Ona was in Ensenada. Is that all? And that's all. He didn't get the name of the boat. Look, you want me to go all the way down there just to find out if the girl he saw was Mrs. Estabrook? Right. Uh, what is your fee, Marlowe? Fifty bucks a day plus expenses. That's the minimum if I take the job. I don't think I will. When business gets so bad, I have to do divorce work, I'll quit and write my memoirs. No, I'm sorry, but that's the way it is. No, no, sit down, Marlowe. Ona and I have had our share of difficulties, true. She's quite a few years younger than I and used to be a dancer. But, generally speaking, we're happy. Specifically what? I'm worried about her. Here. There's money in this envelope and a recent photograph of my wife. And there's more of both if the need arises. Uh, incidentally, what kind of a day is it outside? Gorgeous. Well, then you can drive. It's only 250 miles. Yeah. By the way, how has the importing business been lately, uh, legitimately speaking? You do have a suspicious mind, don't you? Only when the situation calls for it, and this does. However, I can understand an imagination working overtime here in the dark, Mr. Estabrook. So I'll take your money and go on down to Ensenada and see if anything's wrong. But look, I'm giving you notice beforehand. If it turns out to be family laundry and nothing more, I drop it. You're a reputable man. Just see that I get my money's worth, Marlowe, and you can keep the change. I'll expect to hear from you. When my eyes adjusted to the dazzling glare outside, I looked in the envelope and picture of an impish, dark-haired woman and five $100 bills. For the first time, I realized what Estabrook had meant by keep the change. But it didn't help my attitude even a little. By two o'clock, I was on the road south. A late lunch in La Jolla with an old friend, a routine baggage inspection at the border. And then 70 twisting miles of lonely road brought me to Ensenada. Just as the Mexican sun dropped into the sea. I drove past the piers and canneries at the edge of town. And then along the curving shore to the only hotel elegant enough to meet the demands of the woman I figured on Estabrook to be. 
After I'd gotten a room and cleaned up, I went to the desk and asked for her. She was registered, had number 74, and at the moment was out on the patio. <laughs> All of which sounded ridiculously normal. And I thought again of an imagination at work in a dark room back in L.A. I thanked the clerk in crippled Spanish and turned in time to catch the end of a long, cold stare from a pair of fog-like eyes that bulged out of an otherwise handsome head on a man in a gray gabardine suit. I didn't think my language had been that bad. But when Popeye followed me out onto the patio, I wasn't too sure. There was no mistaking Ona Estabrook. She sat alone at a table in the far corner, a tall, minted gin drink in front of her. So I put on my best tourist-type smile and walked over. Well, Ona Estabrook, is this a pleasure, enjoying your visit? What? Well, yes, very much, but I, I don't think I... Know me? Oh, of course, you wouldn't remember. My name's Marlowe, Philip Marlowe. No, no, I'm sorry, Mr. Marlowe, but you I... You were a heard... dancer, weren't you, before your marriage, I mean? Well, yes, I was a dancer, but you, you'll have to excuse me now. I, I, I'm expecting a friend. I hope oh, you don't mind. Oh, well, just one thing then, Mrs. Estabrook. Would you mind telling me why you were out on a boat day before yesterday? A boat? Mm-hmm. Why do you ask that? Because you hate boats. You have a phobia about them. And yet you were seen aboard one just two days ago. How come? Well, I... Oh, how come to help me? I spilled the drink all over my skirt. Excuse me. I'll have to change. That maneuver was as subtle as a bulldozer at work. When she spilled her drink, it was done desperately, and fear sent her running for the exit. I turned to follow her as she left the lighted patio and headed down a dark arcade. But a gray gabardine suit and a pair of Popeyes slid out of a chair and beat me to it. I waited until their footsteps faded, which said they turned a corner. Then I started after them. It was strictly follow the leader, but I didn't realize how many were playing the game until a knife point stung at the skin at the soft part of the back about kidney high. Stop, senor, and don't cry out. Don't even say ouch. I turned and saw a mottled red face ugly on a squat long-arm body. The ivory-handled knife in his hand could have clipped my spine in one easy thrust. You got a car here, senor? Come on, I speak English good. You got a car? Yeah, I got a car. What's it to you? I am Haiba, the crab. It's lots to me. What's Let's your pitch, go. Buster? Come on, tell me. <laughs> Martinez says for me to keep a sharp eye on things, to be sure something is not wrong. It looks to me like something is wrong with you, senor. Who's Martinez? <laughs> you going to play possum, senor? <laughs> uh, this one is your car, huh? All right. Yeah. Okay. I take first your one. Uh, now, please to get in. You gonna drive. Believe it or not, you're making a big mistake, Krabby. Besides, what if I don't want to drive? Oh, you better want to drive, gringo. <laughs> or I kill you right here. Go on, drive. Handle it. Stop here. And now we get out. Ah, it's nice and quiet here on the beach, no? We walk over there to that old adobe wall. We're going to have a talk there. It's going to be dull, Buster. We've got nothing in common. Please, senor, don't make it hard on me. I don't know why you've got to come and mix everything up again when time is running out. Why did you come? I needed new haraches. Mm, look, senor, you think I'm ugly? You know, beauty crab, let's face it. See, si. and I can act even uglier. Maybe I could go on the radio and make a big hit, no? <laughs> or maybe I make the big hit on your face. Oh! Mm. Don't try something, senor. 
Or I kill you with your own gun. Now, the truth. You spoke to the senora about the boat. Why? I forget. Who are you, senor? Private detective named Marlowe. Oh, a private detective. Who are you working for? Dolph Bentley? I never heard of Dolph Bentley. Who's he? You're lying. The senora knows him. I heard her say Dolph Bentley won't make it tonight. Yeah, he's lucky. See, I tell you something else. He better not make it. Martinez is going to do business with one man only tonight. Now you want to say something? No? Then I'll say it. You take what's going to be left of your face. Don't, oh, Senor Bentley, until I get out of Encinada and don't come back. Oh. Understand? Ah. Oh. Hey. Uh, oh. hey. Wait a minute. Wait, 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 stop the crash. Come on. Who are you? Wait, oh, it's you. I'll kill you. We can't take it easy with uh, you. You're in good hands now, Marlowe. I'm a fellow uh, American. Oh. You know, you're pretty lucky, you know that? I am? Oh, sure, yeah. Where'd my pal go? Huh? Him? Oh, I chased him off. You know, it's a wonder he didn't put a knife in you. These yeah. fellows are mean with knives. This guy was no slouch with a gun butt, either. Hey, hmm? where'd you come from, anyway? Oh, down the beach a ways. I just finished oh. working on my boat, and I was taking a walk, oh. and I heard the commotion came over to see about it. This guy was beating you up, so I yelled and started for him, but he ran. Oh, is that right? Mm-hmm. I'm glad somebody stopped him. Thanks very much, Mr. De... Roman. Oh. Uh, Lou Roman's my name. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm pleased to meet you, Marlowe. Thanks. You know me? Uh, well, yes, I, I took the liberty of looking in your wallet to see that that devil had robbed you. Oh. It doesn't seem so, though. Yeah, I guess I got here just in time. You're a private investigator, I see. Hey, uh, you working on a case now? It's debatable. So far, the case is working on me. Oh. I'd like to find a guy named Dolph Bentley, though. Dolph Bentley? Yeah, yeah. The guy who beat me up had the idea that I was... Ooh. I was hired by Dolph Bentley. Did you ever hear of him? No. No, and I come down here every year to fish, too. Uh-huh. know a lot of folks around here, but I never heard of that one before. Uh, why are you after him? Well, he's, he's tied up in some way to the crab who seems to work with another guy named Martinez who... In turn, is going to do some business of some kind tonight with somebody other than Dolph Bentley. I don't know. And it's it's all connected for some screwy reason with a with a woman who took a boat ride the day before yesterday. Well, uh, what about that? Uh, the woman being on a boat, I mean. Oh, well, she can't stand boats. She's afraid of... Oh, my head. Oh, wait, wait. Here. here. Thanks. I better get you some first aid right yeah, away. That's a good idea. Holy smoke, my car. Man, I'll relax. Huh? Relax. It's right over there. Hey, come on. Let me help you up. All right. Easy oh. now. Easy. Oh. That's it. Now, I'll drive you. Uh, hey, where are you staying? Uh, at the hotel, huh? Yeah. yeah. Oh, Thanks, good. Roman. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm still busy. Uh, easy. I got you. I, I got to get back there. I got to find that girl because she's up to her hair doing a very nasty mess. Uh, listen, Marlo. Huh? If I can help in any way, let me know, will you? <laughs> you know, us Americans have to stick together in a place like this. Right? That's it. Come on. Let's go. Lou Roman, the hail fellow, was indeed well met. He found my gun and drove me back to the hotel. A long hour had gone by since Owen Astabrook had run from the patio, followed by the pop-eyed character in the gabardine suit. I tried a room, checked with the desk again, and from there spent 30 minutes peering into corners and balconies and getting nothing but indignant glares from Mexican lovers. So I left the building and started through the grounds. I worked my way from the stables up into a secluded garden, deserted by all but a marble statue of Montezuma, who, when I passed him, groaned. In the dark at my feet lay Haiba the crab, his mottled face twisted into a tortured grin of agony. 
And sticking straight up just above his belt buckle was the white ivory handle of his own knife. Crab. Crab, who was it? Who got you? I I am sorry what I did. Never mind that. Who did this? Do you know? It both Bentley. Now get a doctor. No, no, you, senor. I I tell Martinez that Dolph Bentley is... Crab. Yeah. In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, when you're 65, if you have worked in business or industry... Call any office of the Social Security Administration for information about your old age and survivor's insurance. The account number that appears on the Social Security card identifies your wage account. The amount of retirement and family insurance that may be payable is set by this account. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Mexican Boat Ride. Even as the life trickled out of the ugly little man called Aiba, and his face, which had been knotted tight in pain, went slowly limp and he was still, I knew that I'd have to get next to Dolph Bentley before the importance of Ona Estabrook aboard a fishing boat off Ensenada would make any sense. Also, I knew that there was a good chance that said Mr. Bentley and the gentleman in gray gabardine known to me as Popeyes were one and the same. So I started back to the hotel. But halfway there, I stopped at the sight of a figure ahead scampering toward an all-alone taxi parked near the main entrance. It was Ona Estabrook. I took off after her. When she was in the cab and away before I could get close enough to do any good, I tried the next best thing, which was the sombrero doorman nearby, who I figured might have heard the address she'd given the driver. Yeah, but what I didn't figure was that the doorman might not habla much English. The Senora Estabrook. Uh, si, senor. Her enters libre a minute ago. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I know that. Now, look. Where did her go? Which way in the libre? Libre. Uh-huh. Oh, un momento, senor. Libre, libre. Oh, no, no. Senor, no, look, pronto. amigo, I, I don't want a taxi. I don't, no libre. No libre. None whatsoever. Ah. Now, please, come here. Let's, let's back it up a little, huh? Senora Estabrook in libre, right? Si, senor. Okay. Now, where did she go? What direction? Uh, que direccion? Oh, I comprendo. Uh-huh. The senora. Eh, the senora. Que direction? Comprendo? Eh, si, senor. Senora Estabrook, go to the pier, the the fishing pier. Which one? Which fishing pier? Did, uh, oh. Qual pier? Uh, the small pier, senor. Uh-huh. The little one near the big cannery, the fishes cannery. That's senor. all I want to know. Gracias, amigo, and... Uh-oh. Senor? Senor, what are you seeing? I'm not sure. But even if I were, I wouldn't be able to explain it to you. Buenas noches, pal. Thanks a lot. I had been seeing at the silhouette of a man huddled close to the ground and slinking out from a hotel along a high hedge that led back toward the statue in the body of Aiba, a man who I knew could be the elusive Popeyes. I followed the walk that was close into the hotel until I was on a line with the hedge, and I started after him fast. I still had a good two yards to go when he heard me and pivoted, so I swung first. Oh, why you dirty... Roman, wait a minute, hold it. Gee, it's me, Marlo, I'm sorry. Holy smoke, I... 
I thought you were someone else. Oh, gargantua, maybe? Oh, brother. Oh, I'm sorry. What'd you hit me with? I have everything I had. I figured you were Dolph Bentley, and as such, Roman, I didn't want you to get away with murder, literally. Murder? Hey, not that girl you mentioned, Marlowe. Owen Astorbrook? No, no, no. The corpse is that item you sigged away from me over in those ruins. Somebody got to him with his own knife there near the statue. Uh Ah, then I was right. I did see someone move over there. Well, yeah, a couple of minutes ago, Marlowe. I was on the balcony outside of my room at face of the garden here, you see. And when I saw you run for the main entrance, I had a feeling that you might be in trouble again, so I came on down here. Well, then what happened? Well, I was about to call out to you when I heard some noise over there near the statue. It was a man. He was running away fast, heading toward those stables. A man wearing gabardine, maybe tan, maybe gray. I... Maybe Dolph Bentley. Thanks, Roman. You've been a big help. When you get back to the hotel, tell him about the dead man, will you? i got to run. The stable was a robust left fielder's peg to home plate from where we'd been standing. So by the time I got there, I was out of breath and facing nothing more important than thick darkness. A lot of hay and a couple of horses who couldn't sleep nights talking things over. Until I moved around a corner past the stalls and close to the half-open door of a shack. Marked both Cabina Telefono and the equivalent in English that showed a single unshaded light. And under that, a man standing alone next to a telephone, writing something on the back of an envelope. He was wearing a gray gabardine suit, and when he lifted his Popeyes from the paper in front of him... I knew the next move had to be mine, 38 and all. Let it go, Buster. Keep your hands close to your sides. Just as you say, senor. I'd be a fool not to obey you. You're so right, a dead fool. So keep that in mind while we chat, won't you, Mr. Bentley? Bentley? Uh Uh-huh. How did you find out who I am? It was easy. All I had to do was listen to a dying man's last two words when I asked him to name his murderer. He said, Dolph Bentley. Any comment? Yes. You know a lot, senor. Don't resent it, friend. I learned it all the hard way. Don't move, Bentley. I was only changing my position, senor. Which will be prone if you try it again. Now, what do you know about this whole mess and an American girl named Ona Estabrook who I figure is no mobster? Nothing, senor. You're a liar, Bentley. Which brings me to the point. One, why the pressure on the girl, and two, what's so important about her taking a ride on a fishing boat? Come on, brother. It's getting late for a murderer. Start talking straight the first time out. All right. I'll start with a question. Senor, how does all this concern you? You gain a percentage if the smugglers are not interfered with, perhaps? We were talking about the girl, remember? Yes, I remember. But you see, senor, I have little to offer on that score. How little? A single observation. In your country, senor, people who do not mind their own business are called nosy. Here in Mexico, we have another term. Asno. Which means what? Jackass, senor. Who, unlike the cat, cannot see in the dark... But can try his best, Bentley. No gun, senor. Okay, amigo, no gun, but this. Ah, snow. When Bentley met the floor and went out cold, I sagged to one knee. Stayed that way until the air rushing into my lungs quit sounding like sandpaper over a drumhead. Then I got back to my feet and turned on a bracket lamp on the other side of the room. I opened Bentley's jacket, slipped his thirty-two automatic out of its shoulder holster, emptied the clip, and stopped dead at the shimmer of light dancing on polished silver that I hadn't expected. It was a badge. Below his shoulder holster and pinned to his vest, Republic of Mexico, Department of Customs, Captain. I made a dive for the envelope near the telephone. On the back there was writing in thick pencil, which I finally figured to mean fishing pier near Cannery, 2 a.m., Inside, nothing. On the front, further proof that I'd never met Mr. Dolph Bentley at all, but instead it tangled hard-like, 
with one Captain Juan Descartos Intelligence Section Custom Building, Mexico City, Mexico. While trying to revive Captain Descartos, the truth rammed into my mind. Owner Estabrook had rushed off for the pier near the cannery. That Captain Descartes had noted is a good place to be at 2 o'clock in the morning, which was less than 20 minutes away. And a great time for me to get to my car and the pier. It won't work, senor. Yeah, you're a bright boy, thanks. Well, do you like the job on the car, senor? I think it shines well for the eight pesos you owe me. Uh, nobody asked you to bother, Junior, but I'll see you later. Right now, I gotta run, huh? For eight pesos, one dollar you can write, Senor. I'll replace the distributor cap. What? Come here, you. But, but Senor, it was very dirty all over. Inside, too. The steering wheel, black as can be. Look, I, I ruined my best rag cleaning That's it. That's tough. Now, give me that distributor cap, or you'll be the saddest pair of dark eyes between here and the Panama Canal. Senor... Oh, never mind. Here. You pay me the dollar? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just put the cap back where it belongs. Quick, will you? I'm in a hurry. Well, come on. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. The precious 60 seconds ticked off before I was out of the parking lot and driving fast toward the fishing pier near the cannery, where I knew I was finally going to get next to Dolph Bentley and, if I made it in time, prevent another murder. When I screeched to a stop away from the pier, piled out of my car and ran the length of the oil-soaked planking to where a single boat was making ready to cast off, I saw one of the two persons aboard the small catch was owner Estabrook. The other was Lou Roman, hearty American fisherman. When I stepped aboard, our hunch hit me right between the eyes. I pulled my gun and pointed it an inch above his waist. What are you doing here, Marlo? I might ask you the same question, Roman, or do I call you Bentley from here on out? Marlo, you know... Now he can't kill me. Now I don't have to be afraid of him anymore. Oh, Marlo, thank goodness you got here in time. Yeah, hooray. The Marines have landed in the form of a private army. Cut it out, Bentley, and don't move. Oh, no, what do you mean about being afraid? What's your connection with this fisherman here? Well, it was an accident, Marlo. A mix-up in our baggage. Lou Roman and I both happened to stop for customs inspection at the border at the same time, and our suitcases were switched. I didn't notice it at the time, but when I got to the hotel, I discovered the mistake and went to Roman's room to correct it. But instead, you found Bentley here posing as Roman, right? Yes. He killed him, Marlo. He told me he did. That's a dirty lie. Roman's all right. He's in Chicago. No, he's not. He's dead. You killed him. Someplace between here and Tijuana, Marlo. He said I'd get the same treatment if I opened my mouth. Then he's the one who forced you to go out on that boat yesterday. Stay back, Bentley. So that people wouldn't be suspicious, he made me appear at the hotel, in the patio there, at the restaurant. Why didn't you run? I couldn't. He wasn't around. Another man was. A horrible man with large eyes that never left me. Yeah. So why don't you drop it, Marlo? No sale, Bentley. You see, I know that the horrible man with the large eyes can't be one of your henchmen. His badge says so. What? Badge? He's an officer, Marlo? Yeah, captain owner. Give up, Bentley? You had better. There are too many men ready to take you. Descartos. <laughs> Where'd you come from? Oh, I have been here quite a while. But your story was so interesting, I just couldn't interrupt. Marlo took you for Dolph Bentley, Captain Descartes. You played along because you didn't know who he was, is that it? Yes, senora, and I did not find out until I heard Bentley call Marlo a private eye. <laughs> You're not mad at me, Captain, huh? Even though I bungled your plan to capture Martinez? 
And uh, not to mention our little meeting at the stables. <laughs> well, senor, do not say that you bungled the job of catching Martinez. It was more a matter of uh, priority. Uh, por favor, senor, the tacos. Of course, here you are. Gracias. You see, senor Marlowe, I am certain that one day I will catch Martinez. But not at the cost of letting a murderer kill again. Hmm. But, senor Marlowe, there is one thing that puzzles me. The murder of the one known as Haiba. Oh, Martinez henchman. Well, you see, Captain, he knew that a man named Dolph Bentley was mixed up in this because he'd overheard Ona and her keeper, then called Lou Roman, talking about him. He wanted to know more. Also, he couldn't figure who I was. So he beat you up? Correct. Bentley, of course, only saved my life because it was an easy way to find out just how much Haiba did know. After which he got to him. Enough? Not quite, senor. There is still one thing. How did you know that Lou Roman was actually Bentley? On a hunch, Captain. And by positive identification from you, Ono, when we were on the boat. But, um, now it's my turn. I got a question for you, honey. Have you had enough vacation? Uh-huh. Matter of fact, Marlowe, I wired my husband just before we came in to eat. Oh. I, I said the change didn't your world of good. Be home tomorrow to stay. Love always. Well, Captain, will you pass the tacos, please? They're, they're awfully good, really. <laughs> It was late the next afternoon, and Ona Estabrook was already gone when I checked out of the hotel, said goodbye to Captain Dos Cados, and headed north to the border, where two hours later I stopped for customs inspection of my baggage. It was dark, and I was only 50 miles from Los Angeles before I realized exactly what that inspection had meant, because it was then, for the first time, that I noticed the little cowhide suitcase on the seat next to me, which should have been mine, was tagged differently. The name and address of a man who lived in Long Beach, California. <laughs> when I got there, I kept driving. I knew I could ship it to him and ask for mine in exchange when I got home. Oh, yes. I'd had just about enough for a while. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character and crime's most deadly enemy, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Be sure and be with us next week when Philip Marlowe says... It started with death on my doorstep and got worse when I lied to a sympathetic bull, was pistol-whipped by a gorilla with dimples and fought with a kitten on the keys... And it might have gone on that way all night if I hadn't been helped by the king of the beasts. Stay tuned for Our Miss Brooks next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for Eve Arden to star in Our Miss Brooks. The show was a hit on the radio from the very outset, and within eight months of its launch as a regular series, the show landed several honors, including four for Eve Arden, who won polls in four individual publications at the time. Arden was actually the third choice to play the title role. Shirley Booth had been suggested, but subsequently rejected. Lucille Ball was believed to have been the next choice, but she was committed to My Favorite Husband and didn't audition. And with a slightly rewritten audition script, Osgood Conklin, for example, was originally written in as a school board president, but was now the incoming new Madison principal, 
Arden agreed to give the newly revamped show a try. She won a listener's radio poll by Radio Mirror magazine as the top-ranking comedian of 1948 through 1949. And now, tonight's episode, Going Skiing. Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden. episode of Our Miss Brooks, under the direction of Al Lewis. Well, in many of these United States, winter seems to have settled down for a protracted stay. Our Miss Brooks, who teaches English at Madison High School, doesn't seem to mind. No, indeed, I do enjoy the winter season. There are so many activities to engage in. Ice skating, sleigh riding, building snowmen. Of course, the last snowman I built melted after one dance, but... While we're on this... While we're on the subject of snowmen, I was speaking to my landlady just last Friday morning about one Philip Boynton. It seems the bashful biologist had come out of his turtleneck sweater long enough to invite me to Madison's annual matinee snowball dance. That's wonderful, Connie. And I just know you'll be the belle of the ball this afternoon. <laughs> that outfit is so colorful and wintry looking. Especially those lovely blue socks. I haven't put on my socks yet. <laughs> Maybe we ought to turn the heat up, Mrs. Davis. Of course, dear. But I'm crazy about that sweater. And the earrings are divine, even though they are a bit large. These are not earrings, Mrs. Davis. They happen to be earmuffs. (laughs) I'm just wearing them a little lower than usual. You see, I have what is known in medical circles as cold lobes. Oh, Oh, it's nothing to worry about. I just don't want my blue feet to get jealous. I'll put my socks and shoes on right now. I brought them in with me. Yes, you better get ready, Connie. Walter Denton will be here to pick you up any minute. But uh, while we're waiting, you still haven't told me how you got Mr. Boynton to ask you to the dance. It wasn't easy, Mrs. Davis. I started my campaign weeks ago. First of all, I played hard to get for two days. And then? And then I... Then I played Available Jones for three. (laughs) After that, I changed my lipstick four times and used six different brands of perfume in as many days. And then? Then I bought two tickets to the dance and invited him. (laughs) But it should be fun. Oh, that's Walter now. Coming, Walter! See you tonight, Mrs. Davis. Good morning, Walter. Greetings, good fairy of wintertime. Oh, your warmth and beauty bring cheery comfort to this frigid, icicle-ridden chariot. Careful, Walter, you're fogging up the windshield. (laughs) Your outfit's a knockout, Miss Brooks. Something new's been added, hasn't it? What do you mean? Those large woolen earrings. (laughs) These are earmuffs, cold lobes. Open your door. Yes, ma'am. I think it only fair to call it to your attention, Miss Brooks, but you may not be so comfortable on your way to school today. You see, I... Ouch! Brought my skis with me. (laughs) If you hadn't called it to my attention, I never would have noticed them. Anything broken? No. Fortunately, this woolen skirt doesn't splinter easily. (laughs) Well, let's get going. Why don't you put these skis in the back of the car, Walter? Oh, it's not big enough. 
Oh. Just hold them on your lap, Miss Brooks. That's not big enough either. <laughs> Here, I'll stand them up on the floor between us. Oh, no, that won't work. You've got the top on today. Oh, just sticking through the hole in the top. <laughs> what hole? Grab the wheel a minute. I'll show you. <laughs> that hole right there. Perfect fit. <laughs> what is this metal contraption in the center of the skis, Walter? Oh, that is my own invention, Miss Brooks. I call it the Denton Claw. It's guaranteed to keep your skis on no matter what. Really? Yes, not only that, but it's designed to keep your skis in perfect position regardless of what you're doing with your feet. <laughs> Suppose you're crushing grapes. <laughs> Brooks. Oh, this is a great contraption. I'm going to try it out this afternoon on the big hill back of school. But aren't you going to the snowball dance in the gym today? Oh, sure. Yeah, but a bunch of us kids are going to go skiing for an hour before the dance. Say, maybe you'd like to come along, Miss Brooks. Not me, Walter. I've never been on a pair of skis, and I'm perfectly contented to keep it that way. You don't know what you're missing, Miss Brooks. There's nothing like sailing down those snowy slopes and taking a crack at some Christie's and stems. There'll be no Christie's on my stems. <laughs> but it's a wonderful sport, and the exercise is great for you. Ah, oh, you ought to see those kids after a half hour on that ski run. Their eyes are glowing, and their faces are red and tingling. And that's not all. <laughs> their noses are red, too. need. Why, with my blue earlobes and a red nose, I'd look like somebody stuck a flag in the snow. <laughs> Good morning, Mr. Boynton. All set for the dance this afternoon? Oh, yes, indeed, Miss Brooks. I see you're all ready for it, too. It's a very interesting outfit you're wearing. I'm especially fond of that winter gypsy motif. <laughs> Winter gypsy motif? Yes, those large woolen earrings. <laughs> Earmuffs, cold lobes. <laughs> We've got a few minutes before class, Mr. Boynton. Do you mind if I sit down for a little chat? Well, not at all, but be careful where you sit. I brought... Ouch! ...my skis to school today. <laughs> Thanks, Mr. Boynton. That's a very good tip. The second one I've received today. <laughs> Here, stand them in a corner. All right. You see, there's going to be a little time before the dance begins, so I thought I'd go over to the big hill behind school this afternoon and do a little sheing. A little what? Sheing. Oh, there are other pronunciations, I suppose, but in England and Norway, sheing is considered most acceptable. Under the proper conditions, you can't knock it anywhere. <laughs> By the way, Miss Brooks, are you interested in the sport? Oh, quite a bit, Mr. Boynton. Except that I've always called it heeing. I mean... <laughs> I mean, I've always called it skiing. Well, skiing or sheing, I'm going out on the hill after school. Would you like to come along with me? Certainly. Uh, certainly. <laughs> if there's one thing I'm just crazy to do, it's to sail down that snowy expanse and try out my Christie's and Stemmies. <laughs> of course, I haven't had much of an opportunity to ski since coming to Madison, but 
I know it'll all come back to me in a flash. Oh, I see you've got the poles that help you keep your balance. Just what do you call those poles, Mr. Barton? Just poles. And what about those metal discs near the bottom? What are they called? They're just called metal discs. I've got this thing down pat, haven't I? <laughs> well, if you'll excuse me now, I'm going to dig up a pair of skis for this afternoon. I don't have a pair of my own. Well, I don't have any extra ones. Do you think you can borrow some, Miss Brooks? Don't worry, Mr. Boynton. I'll be out on that hill with you this afternoon if I have to get a long splinter in each foot. <laughs> Walter, that's why I asked you to stay after class. You've just got to lend me those skis today. Hey, but, Miss Brooks, I spent my whole study period polishing them up. I mean, I haven't even tried these out myself yet. But, Walter, I was looking for you, Walter. Not... Oh, hi, Miss Brooks. Hello, Harriet. Hi, Harriet. Well, what's wrong? You two having a beef? Not a whole beef, Harriet, just a small filet. <laughs> I'm trying to convince him to lend me his skis just for this afternoon. Mr. Boynton's going to give me a refresher course. Refresher course? But you said you never skied in your life. That should make it all the more refreshing. <laughs> of course Walter will lend them to you, Miss Brooks. But, Harriet, we were going out to the hill and... The hill won't disappear, Walter, and neither will the snow. We'll get to the dance earlier this way. Yeah, but... Walter, dear... Which is more romantic? Racing up and down a hill on a pair of sticks or holding me close in your arms doing the mambo jumbo? <laughs> the skis are yours, Miss Brooks. <laughs> Good. Now show me how to put these things on so I'll look like I practically know what I'm doing this afternoon. Oh, okay, Miss Brooks. Well, with the new Denton claw, it's relatively simple. Uh, just slip your feet through these metal toe plates. Uh, that's right. Now, we just snap this cable around your heel. Is this your new invention, Walter? Yeah, this is it, Harriet. Now, the other cable. There. How do they feel? Real cozy. I'll just take a few steps and see if I can remain standing. They feel all right to me. Now, help me get them off, Walter. I've got another class in a few minutes. Oh, here. Sit down, Miss Brooks. Thanks, Harriet. Now, we just grab the binding here... Hold the cable thusly and give it a gentle tug and presto. <laughs> That's funny. I'll try it again. Take hold of the binding here, give the cable a yank here, and presto. <laughs> Once again, presto. <laughs> Cadabra. These cables seem to be stuck. Let's see. Oh, now I remember. Oh, when I had the whole thing worked out and assembled, I remembered leaving myself a notation about one detail that had to be perfected. What's that? A way to get them off. <laughs> you mean you can't get them off Miss Brooks' feet? Now, calm down, everybody. Don't get panicky. We'll get them off by and by. By and by? Look, Walter, while we're waiting for by and by to get here, there's something you've just got to do so I won't appear ridiculous in this classroom. What's that, Miss Brooks? Cut a hole in the roof and let some snow in. Brush your teeth with cold gates. Colgate Dental Cream, it cleans your breath. What a toothpaste. Why it cleans your teeth? 
Colgate toothpaste. Clean your breath. What a toothpaste. What a clean your teeth. Colgate dental cream cleans your breath while it cleans your teeth. And the Colgate way stops tooth decay best. Yes, the Colgate way is the most thoroughly proved and accepted home method of oral hygiene known today. Over two years' research showed brushing teeth right after eating with Colgate dental cream helped stop more decay for more people than ever before reported in dentifrice history. The Colgate way stopped tooth decay best. No other dentifrice, ammoniated or not, offers such conclusive proof. And you should know that Colgate's, while not mentioned by name, was the only toothpaste used in the research on tooth decay recently reported in Reader's Digest. So always follow the Colgate way to clean your breath while you clean your teeth. And stop tooth decay best. Brush your teeth with Colgate. Colgate dental cream, it cleans your breath. What a toothpaste. What a cleans your teeth. And the Colgate way stops tooth decay best. Well, the American teacher has been called upon to face many a crisis, and I refuse to let the fact that my ankles were locked to a pair of skis by the Denton Claw phase me one bit. When it came time for me to conduct my class, I merely smiled, rose from my desk, and with my customary dignity and poise, stepped lightly to the blackboard. (laughs) Attention, all of you. What's the matter with you kids, anyhow? Don't you think it's cold enough in this room for skis? (laughs) Now, look at the blackboard, please. In order to find the adjunct phrase in the sentence on the board, I shall break it down into its component parts. Now, where's that chalk? Oh, I have some on my desk. One moment, class. Here it is. Miss Brooks, I've got to talk to you for a minute. I've got good news. Kindly pick up your books, class. Yes, Harriet? What do you want us to do with our books, Miss Brooks? I want you to put your noses in them. (laughs) Also, your mouths. I couldn't leave you here marooned in this predicament, Miss Brooks, so guess what I brought for you? A St. Bernard with a keg of arsenic? (laughs) No, no, I borrowed a hacksaw from a machine shop. I'll get those skis off you in no time. Now? Sure. While the class is busy reading, I'll just slide under your desk, leap at your imprisoned puppies, and hack away. (laughs) Well, it's as good a time as any, I guess. But be careful with that saw, Walter. Remember, my ankle bone is connected to the shin bone. (laughs) Here I go, Miss Brooks. I've got to get these leather thongs first. They're even tougher than the wire cable. I'll work as fast as I can, though. I'd hate for Mr. Conklin to catch it with these slats on. Oh, that's a charming thought. Especially when I recall what a bug our beloved principal is on the personal appearance of the faculty. All that has to happen now... At ease, class. Can't happen. Mr. Conklin. Don't bother to get up, Miss Brooks. Don't worry. I mean, this is quite a surprise, sir. I didn't expect you in my room this morning. Ouch! Does my visit pain you so severely, Miss? Oh, no, sir. On the contrary. Every time I see your smiling face, I... Ouch! <laughs> Forgive me, Mr. Conklin, this bit of a headache. You certainly are. <laughs> but, Miss Brooks, if I may... Of course you may, Mr. Conklin. You may return to this classroom any time you wish. Well, goodbye. It's been nice to have seen... Oops! Oh, you dropped your chalk under your desk, Miss Brooks. Let me get it for you. No, no, thank you. I've, I've already got it, see? Amazing. It fell to the floor and you got it without even bending over. <laughs> My foot handed it to me. 
I don't know what's wrong with you this morning, Miss Brooks, but I came in to address your class, and with your permission, I'll do so. Permission granted, sir. Very granted. Go right ahead, Mr. Conklin. <clears throat> Thank you. And now then, most of you are aware of the fact that by dint of much argument and persuasion, I recently prevailed upon the Board of Education to appropriate $1,000 for the purpose of re-sanding and completely refinishing the floors throughout this building and in our gymnasium. This work has been done and done well. Yet only moments ago in the hallway, in flagrant violation of my posted notice to preserve the school floors, I discovered the soggy prints of a pair of skis. <laughs> Something in your throat, Miss Brooks? Just my heart. Please continue, Mr. Conklin. Well, I don't like to have to resort to these methods, but I must ask all you students to swing your feet into the aisles, and I will pass among you to inspect them. I'll take this row first. Right over here. Now, quiet, class. Whatever you do, don't talk. This file isn't very sharp, Miss Brooks. Then for heaven's sake, start biting, Walter. I'll do my best. I'm not down here playing this little piggy, you know. <laughs> and more. The guilty one doesn't seem to be in this class, Miss Brooks. Have uh, you looked in the cloakroom? Believe me, the skis aren't in the cloakroom, sir. I wish they were, but they're not. That is, if you have to go back to your office uh, now... You'll have another class coming in shortly, Miss Brooks. I'll wait for them. Meanwhile, carry on with this one. But it's quite a boring lesson today, Mr. Conklin. You see, I was about to tell my class which is the adjunct phrase on the blackboard. Well, and... Now, don't merely tell them, Miss Brooks. They'll retain it much better if you go to the blackboard and check it up. Go to the blackboard? <laughs> yes, Miss Brooks. And at once? At once? <laughs> yes, Miss Brooks. Now, march. Very well. <laughs> There, the phrase is checked off. Well, that's more like it. And I must say, you walk very gracefully in those skis you're wearing. <laughs> but now that you've checked off the adjunct phrase, Miss Brooks, it seems to me that you ought to discuss all the component parts of the sentence, such as prepositions, adjectives, verbs, ad... Those skis you're wearing! <laughs> I am waiting, Miss Brooks. Drag those warped planks out from under that desk of yours and bring them here. But, Mr. Conklin, I... Ouch! I, I can't imagine I am what... waiting, Miss Brooks. Very well, sir. Here I am. See, I'm not wearing skis. No, no, you're not. But would you mind telling me, nature girl, why you're conducting this class in your bare feet? <laughs> trying to preserve the floors, Mr. Conklin. I just kicked my shoes off under the desk. I'll just have a look under that desk. But there's nothing down there but shoes. Out of my way, I'll look for myself. Miss Brooks is right. There's nothing down here but us shoes. <laughs> just as I suspected. Walter Denton, a hacksaw, and the skis. It's the old eternal triangle. Hand <laughs> me the skis, Walter. I'll deal with you both in my office after school. And now, Miss Brooks, hand those skis over to me. Here you are, Mr. Conklin. You seem to have broken my glasses, Miss Brooks. Please, Mr. Conklin, you know I didn't mean it. You never do. You know, Miss Brooks, for most people, skis are synonymous with healthful, invigorating exercise. But in your position, somehow they become a lethal weapon. 
I never want to see a pair on or near you again. Is that clear? Yes, sir. But about your glasses, and I... Knowing I might make contact with you today, I brought my extra pair along. <laughs> if you just step back a pace or two, I'll slip them on. Ah, there. Now, if you'll be good enough to reach back and hand me the other ski. The other one? Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, here you are. <laughs> oh, what have I done? Oh, I'm, I'm terribly upset, Mr. Conklin. You must be. You only broke a window this time. <laughs> Not very good aim for you. I still have my glasses. Yes, sir. And I still have the ski you asked for. Here it is, Mr. Conklin. <laughs> Good shot, girl. The summit of the old ski hill is just up ahead, Miss Brooks. I wish we could have started earlier. It's getting pretty nippy out. The delay was unavoidable, Mr. Boynton. Right after school, Mr. Conklin summoned Walter Denton and me to a meeting in his office. You know how strict he is about parliamentary procedure. Oh, yes, I do. We had the floor for over an hour. You and Walter? Yes. He waxed and I polished. <laughs> but that's all behind us now. Yes, let's forget about school and discipline. Well, this is the summit. We'll take off from here. You'll take off from here. I'm just a spectator. I don't even have any skis. Oh, I know, but we'll share mine. Ladies first, Miss Brooks. Here, I'll slip them on for you. Oh, no, please. I wouldn't think of it. Well, nonsense. Give me your right foot first, Miss Brooks. No, Mr. Boynton. Now, just lean down, lay your head close to mine, and put your arms around my shoulders. Well, if you're going to bribe me... <laughs> there. There's one. And there's the other. All set to take off, Miss Brooks. Wait. It looks much different from the top than it did from below. Behind, Mr. Boynton! Oh, it's Mr. Conklin. Oh, no, I've got to work fast. Ski high, Mr. Conklin! Uh, why are you covering your skis with snow, Miss Brooks? I'll explain later, Mr. Boynton. They're pretty well hidden now. Ah, hello, Boynton. What a delightful winter's day. Hello, Mr. Conklin. Turned pretty raw, didn't it? <laughs> Well, Miss Brooks, how have you been behaving yourself since I saw you last two pair of glasses ago? Just fine, Mr. Conklin. Oh, I notice you don't have your skis on, Mr. Conklin. Aren't you going to take advantage of the snow today? Me? Get on a pair of skis with my blood pressure? No, thank you. I just came up to look at the scenery and get a breath of fresh air before plunging into the fetid atmosphere of that dance in the gym. You make it sound like fun. Oh, the view's lovely from here, all right. You'll have to step a bit closer to the edge of the hill, Mr. Conklin, if you really want to get a bird's-eye view. Uh, that, Mr. Boynton, is for the birds. <laughs> I'll, uh... I'll just stand here behind Miss Brooks and take a peek over her shoulder. Gad, it looks like a terrifying descent. Oh, there's nothing to it, sir. Now, no, watch how Miss Brooks sails down. I'll just give you a flying start, Miss Brooks. Mr. Boynton, wait, please. Here you go. Oh, no! Where did that wind come from? You're doing fine, Miss Brooks. Just watch out for those rocks. Rocks? Where are the brakes on these things? You can now. Steady, Miss Brooks. Slow down a bit. Slow down. You're going too fast. I can't slow down. Here goes. Oh. Oh. 
an experience. Mind if I get off now? Brooks returns in just a moment, but first... You get smoother, more comfortable, comfortable shaves by shaving the palm olive priceless way. Get smoother, more comfortable, comfortable shaves the palm olive priceless way. Hey, that's a fact, men. You can get smoother, yes, more comfortable shaves the palm olive brushless shaving cream way. Just rub velvet smooth palm olive brushless into your beard. You'll find it wilts the toughest whiskers, actually protects your skin by providing a soft film that floats your razor's cutting edge. Remember, over 1,200 men tested the Palmolive Brushless Shaving Cream Way following directions on the package. And no matter how they shaved before, three out of four reported beards easier to cut, less razor pull, smoother, more comfortable, yes, more comfortable shaves. So men, try the Palmolive Brushless Way yourself. Even in cold or hard water, you get a close, clean shave. And a smoother, more comfortable, yes, a more comfortable shave. You get smoother, more comfortable, comfortable shave, the Palmolive Brushless Way. Next time you shave, try the Palmolive Brushless Shaving Cream Way. And now, once again, here is our Miss Brooks. Well, Mr. Conklin soon followed his gradually descending blood pressure down the side of the hill. And shortly afterwards, Mr. Boynton and I approached the gym. Well, you did very well on those skis I loaned you, Miss Brooks. I'm still alive, if that's what you mean. But I was rather surprised that they didn't slip off when I hit the tree. Well, you've got to give Walter credit. That invention of his really does the job. What? You mean he put the Denton Claw on your skis, too? Well, certainly. Well, I see the band's getting ready to play a number. May I have this dance, Miss Brooks? I wouldn't be without it. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Gunsmoke, followed by Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. Thanks to Paul Stringer and Joel Schoenwolf for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. Stay tuned for Ziggy and Stardust next on Zuma Radio. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.